Our lesson is taken from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, and it's verses 12 to 27. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as children, by whom we may cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand if you're able. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 14th chapter, beginning at the 15th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and manifest myself to them. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Let's bow our heads. Loving God, we thank you that you have not left us alone and without guidance in this world, but you have given us your holy word. As we study your written word now, help us to draw closer to your living word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, it's great to see you again. My privilege to return. I'd like to thank, in his absence, Tim, and in his presence, Orvin, um, for having the courage to invite me back, um, as well as the patience. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on our reading from Romans uh, 8 as we continue uh, this series on that letter. In many ways, we seem to be living in an increasingly fatherless age as marriage and partnership breakdowns have accelerated so has the number of single parent families more and more kids are growing up without a meaningful father figure in their lives and we all know the strains on mums trying to make it on their own can be very tough indeed and there are of course many related societal and emotional issues. No one is ever a perfect parent. And if you want to know anything about my parenting, I have at least one daughter present with me at every service this morning. But some are better than others. And research clearly shows that failed and especially abusive relationships with fathers can lead to very damaging results. The same is true with mothers. And the consequences can be pretty scary. U.S. statistics show that girls without a father in their life are two and a half times as likely to become single mothers and 53% more liable to commit suicide. Fatherless boys are 63% more likely to run away and 27%, 37% more liable to abuse drugs. Both girls and boys are twice as likely to drop out of high school and end up in jail, and nearly four times as liable to need help for emotional or behavioral problems. And there are no easy answers to these big challenges, of course, although there are many different approaches. Yet our reading from Romans 8 reminds us that there are also very clear 
spiritual dimensions when we come to think of the whole topic of parenting. Because when we come to faith and join the church, we're invited to find love and acceptance as members of a whole new family, the family of God. We sometimes forget the connections between our relationship with God and those with our natural parents or other family members, but they can be very significant, as I personally observed in many pastoral situations. How we relate to God is so often colored by our past and current family experiences. In his book, Invitation to a Journey, Robert Mulholland tells the story of a woman he met who was the result of an unwanted pregnancy. Although her life's pilgrimage had brought her to faith in Christ and blessed her with a Christian family and a life of relative love and stability, she struggled immensely with the idea that God could have ever planned and created her. She was an accidental byproduct of her mother's occupation, she thought. She was simply obsessed with the need to find out who her father was, and that obsession was consuming her whole life. It's obviously a rather extreme example, but it reflects the problems which can arise when folks' family relationships have been difficult. And the great good news of Romans 8 is that such issues don't need to plague us forever, at least spiritually, because God has made provision for them. Writing to Christians in first century Rome, Paul affirms this truth so powerfully, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, he writes in verse 15, but you received a spirit of sonship or adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Who is this spirit? He is nothing less than the Holy Spirit, who comes to all Christians as soon as we place our faith and trust in Christ to save us. And what is one of his major ministries? To give us the sense and assurance deep in our hearts that we have been adopted as sons and daughters into a wonderful new heavenly family. When the Holy Spirit came on the church in power at the first Pentecost, this was a very dramatic event. There were flames of fire and people spoke in foreign languages previously unknown to them. Folks even thought that the apostles and their followers were drunk at 9 a.m. The crowd was struck to the core by what happened and thousands of people responded to Peter's call to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that similar events can and still do happen today. But the main emphasis in the New Testament is not so much on what we might call the pyrotechnics 
of the Spirit's work, but on the fact that the Holy Spirit is the birthright of believers and can bring wonderful benefits to us all when we're open to receiving what he has to offer. And a major theme is this assurance that we are God's children. In John 14 and 16, we learn that God the Holy Spirit is sent to be with us, even to to live inside us, to be our guide and counsellor, and to remind us of Jesus' teachings. And one of the most important truths of which the Spirit assures us is that God is our heavenly parent, so we can pray our Father, just as Jesus taught us. But it can be one thing to know this truth intellectually, and quite another to feel it personally. It certainly was for the fatherless woman whose story we began a few minutes ago. For her, nothing really changed, Robert Mulholland writes, until one day she was standing at the kitchen sink, washing the dishes with tears of anguish and frustration running down her face into the dishwasher. In her agony, she cried out, Oh God! Who is my father? Then she said she heard a voice that made all the difference. The voice was so real that she turned to see who had come into the kitchen, but there was no one there. Then the voice came again, and this time she knew it was from God. I am your father, and I have always been your father. I am your father, and I have always been your father. In that moment, continues Mulholland, she began to grasp the profound reality of which Paul speaks in many of his letters. She came to know that deeper than the apparent accident of her conception was the eternal purpose of a loving God who had spoken her into being before the foundation of the world. Although we are all, of course, in a sense, God's creations, God is obviously not our natural father. The Greek word for sonship in verse 15 can also be translated adoption. And the biblical idea is that as Christians, we are adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. Yet while adopted status can sometimes be thought of as somehow inferior, we would be wrong to read that into Paul's language in the contemporary Roman society which he was addressing. An adopted son had all the rights, all the entitlements of a natural-born one. He was even deemed special because he had been chosen. So what today's reading reminds us is that those with faith in Christ are all God's children. As such, we enjoy all the blessings, all the privileges which that involves. More than this, verse 17 says, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have been chosen by God and we are guaranteed that God has a glorious inheritance 
for us to look forward to in heaven. That's the great good news of salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and that we have been incorporated into a wonderful new family of God. But today's reading is more than just a personal or even a communal reality. It involves nothing less than the whole of creation. The late great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce has described the theological understanding which permeates or runs through verses 18 through 22 of Romans 8 in his marvelous Tyndale commentary on the letter, which I'd still recommend 50 years after its first publication. And I quote, updating some of Bruce's more traditional male-centered language. The doctrine of a cosmic fall is implicit in the biblical record of Genesis 3, where the ground is cursed for humanity's sake, to Revelation 22, where the curse is finally removed. It is indeed demanded by a world outlook which endeavors to do justice to the biblical doctrine of creation and to the facts of life as we know them. Human beings are part of nature. And the nature of which we form part was created good, has been involved in frustration and futility by sin, and will ultimately be redeemed. It's no accident that the redemption of nature is here seen as coinciding with the redemption of the human body, Bruce continues, that part of our being which links us with the material creation. Humanity was put in charge of the lower creation and involved it in the first human fall. But through the redemption of the second man, Jesus Christ, the entail, the consequences of the fall, are broken, not only for humanity, but the creation which is dependent on us. In other words, just as the fall, when Adam and Eve first disobeyed God, was a cosmic event, salvation is and will be a cosmic process which involves the whole of the created order. What an amazing thought that is. As people of faith, we ourselves live in a state of tension between what is already and what is not yet, between the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and that we already enjoy eternal life and the promise that we shall one day be completely free of sin and death to bask in God's immediate loving presence forever. But so too, creation itself waits with eager longing and even groans as in childbirth for liberation, according to verses 19 and 22. And why so? The creation was subjected to futility, as Bruce puts it, at the fall, 
not of its own will, but by the will of God who subjected it in hope, as Paul says in verses 20 to 21. And we can all see, of course, plenty of evidence of the impact of the fall on and of the created order, especially in how neglectful and abusive human stewardship has led to the degradation and pollution of the environment. But one day, God's promise is that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Revelation 21 verse 1 promises the revelation of a new heaven and a new earth at the end of time after Christ's return. But we don't know exactly when or how this liberation of creation predicted in Romans 8 will take place. And in the meantime, of course, we remain called to do what we can for the created order as it is now. We are to be good stewards of the created order which has been entrusted to our care. We are all, in a sense, to be environmental activists. One of the key questions which our text raises then is not only how we do that, but how we relate to living as part of a fallen creation where redemption has come but not yet been fully realized and where we too can long for liberation and completion. This may not feel like a pressing challenge in our everyday lives. But if we've ever struggled with the sense that our Christian faith or life is frustrated by our natural limitations, we will know it. Perhaps we've yearned for a deeper sense of God's presence in our life, but been distracted by concerns for everyday matters or by the sheer busyness all around us. Maybe we felt that there must be more to experience of God's power and love, but we've just caught a glimpse of what we know must be so much more of a bigger picture. Perhaps we see the evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life, but we feel frustrated by the ways we continue to let ourselves and others down by our unfruitful behavior. Of course, we can all grow spiritually as we are all called to do. As we submit ourselves to God, we can seek and know more of the Holy Spirit's presence and power here and now. We can go, grow in grace and Christian character as we persist in following Christ and his teachings and allow God to work in us to will and to act according to God's good purpose. Nevertheless, as the Apostle writes in verses 23 through 25 of our reading, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for our full adoption as sons and daughters of God, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope 
that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul is looking forward to here then is the full and final redemption of humanity at the end of time when the dead will be raised physically at Christ's return to judge the world and the faithful will receive new resurrection bodies for all eternity. That's what he means, I think, when he refers to the redemption of our bodies as a future prospect for which we hope but which we cannot see. In the meantime, we long, we yearn for the complete realization of our salvation and not just physically. In the marvelous words of the Book of Common Prayer, communion prayer, which we'll be hearing this morning and which remains, in my opinion, theologically superior to any other, by his one oblation or offering of himself once offered, Christ has already made a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. There's no need, then, to repeat his sacrifice. It's been made once and for all. It is perfect, and it is all-sufficient. God's wrath has been propitiated, and God's justice has been satisfied. But while we have been saved from the penalty of sin, and we are being protected from its power, we are yet to be fully redeemed from its consequences in the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we yearn, we long for our complete fulfillment, sometimes almost unconsciously. And even as we do so, our text further reminds us that we are never alone. However, however vulnerable we may feel, God is always with us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul writes in verses 26 to 27, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words, and he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit intercedes for the saints by whom the Apostle means all Christians. What an amazing thought that our very prayers to God are assisted by God that they can even come from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And many who have sat alone or in a prayer meeting, desperate to pray but not knowing quite how we should, will know the personal truth of how the Spirit can himself intercede for us with sighs too deep for words. I guess that the key question then that flows from all of this is how can we facilitate God's work in and for us? And the answer to that surely goes back to the whole issue of spiritual belonging and assurance 
with which we really began today. How can we enter into all that God promises us? How can we prevent our ideas and feelings about ourselves from continuing to be determined by others, especially by negative family influences or peer group pressures? Our our passage can surely remind us that although healing from serious emotional hurts and wounds will often require long-term professional help, to a certain extent, we have a choice when it comes to how we see ourselves. We have a choice. The key verses here are verses 14 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, Paul writes. You received a spirit of sonship or adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And how can we be sure that we are led by the Spirit of God? I would suggest two main ways. First, we can work to ensure that we are open to the Spirit's work in our lives. And that means asking for God's help and for the Spirit's fullness. Avoiding and turning away from those things which we know are wrong and can harm our relationship with God. Second, we can strive to shape our lives and our perceptions according to the truths and principles of God's Word. The foremost place where we can be sure of finding reliable guidance on who we are and what we are to do is in Scripture, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if we are to be led by the Spirit, We need to study the Bible, to meditate upon it, to take its message to heart, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it in the words of today's collect. And the marvelous thing when we do that is that we soon find out that the negative messages of the past and of the world around us are not God's messages to us at all. I could give so many examples But one of the most central is this wonderful truth of Romans 8, that we are children and heirs of God by grace through faith in Christ. We are children of God so we can leave the past behind and enjoy complete security in God's love. We are children of God so we have no need to fear We are children of God, so we are also God's heirs. We can expect to face sufferings, as Paul warns very clearly in verse 17, but we will also one day share in his glory in heaven. What an amazing prospect that is. And if we ever doubt this fact, the Holy Spirit is there to remind us in his power and through God's word. It is he who can enable us to cope with the tensions that inevitably result from living 
in a fallen world and awaiting our full redemption at the end of time when Christ will finally be all in all. It is he, Paul says in verse 16, who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so we can call God Abba, Daddy. Whatever we may have suffered in the past, whatever we may be going through here and now. That's God's word of comfort and consolation to us all. Let's bow our heads. Loving God, we are all here this morning with different backgrounds, in different places, at different stages on our spiritual journey. But thank you, Lord, that your word to us is always one of challenge and assurance. You challenge us to draw nearer to you by grace through faith in Christ. To leave the past behind. But you also, when we are ready to do that, assure us of your constant love and care, that we are members of the family of God. Help us all understand more of what that means and take that truth to our hearts day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.